Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Episode 384 of the Battery of Power podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, coming to you on a Sunday. It's January the 8th, about 7.30 or 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, spoiler alert on this podcast, I am going solo on today's show. For one, I want to encourage you to subscribe to this podcast network. Also catch up on what's been transpiring in the last couple of weeks since I've done a podcast. Uh, usually it's myself and Scott Coleman. Scott is on a beach somewhere. I would encourage you to check out the view that he had and tweeted on Twitter. I believe he might be in Hawaii or something adjacent to that. So Scott will be back soon. Have no fear there. And uh, I will say this. I had a guest lined up for this evening that had to cancel. No bad stuff. I don't blame anybody for having it. It's why I don't announce guests ahead of time when they happen. It's just a scheduling conflict. And hopefully that person will come back on the show at a future date. And I also have a Hawks game to cover this evening at 9 p.m. as they're on the West Coast. And of course, I cover, if you are a new listener, I cover the Atlanta Hawks frequently on the other side of the Atlanta sports landscape. But in an effort to avoid going another week without a podcast, in this particular space, I am recording solo with some mailbag questions. Again, I want to plug, it's been very busy on the podcast feed in recent days, even in the offseason. I know most podcasts, or maybe a lot of them, some of them, however you want to say that, kind of go dark in the offseason with regard to the Braves and really really any kind of sports team. You have, yeah, it takes a certain level of, uh, I don't know, mania to go all the way through the offseason, but we've been giving you content each and every week. Sean Coleman does a great job on the Daily Hammer on this podcast feed. Uh, two, three times a week in the offseason, Sean gives you the latest news and a bite-sized form. He's done a great job with that. Also, we had a podcast this week from our friends at the podcast to be named later. That is, of course, Chris Willis, our fearless leader here at Battery Power, along with Stephen Tolbert. Those guys do a great job. It's more big picture in some ways and uh, always a great listen between the two of them. And usually in the Sunday night slot, it is myself and Scott Coleman. But here we are. You're stuck with me for today. There was a little bit of news. I I'm using giant quotes on the news part because it's been pretty quiet in Braves country the last few days, at least since the last time that Sean did a podcast and that Chris and Steven did a podcast. But um, the only thing that really happened was the Braves adding uh, Yaxel Rios, who is a 29-year-old right-hander on a minor league deal with a spring training invite. The odds of him making an impact are fairly low, but I will say from what I can glean on the internets, uh, he has a pretty live arm and uh, he was smacked around last season though with the White Sox organization. He throws hard, has multiple off-speed options that I can see, and does not seem to be able to command his pitches. And at 29 years old, this is definitely a flyer. I will always say that relief pitchers are very volatile, so maybe there's a world where he helps. But um, I wouldn't expect too much, and I'm only talking about that now at the beginning of the podcast because it was the only thing, truly, of the news variety that happened in the last few days. 
The rest of the podcast, though, will be me answering your mailbag questions. Uh, uh, if you're a, a pro podcaster, you uh, obviously have experience with, with this on the Hawk side, just kind of compiling mailbag questions, some of which become old enough where I can't use them anymore. Some of them come from Twitter, some of them come from DMs or conversations offline or emails, all that stuff. And uh, I thank you, as always, for getting the questions to us. Even if we're not taking mailbag questions, we'll always take them. Um, at Battery Power SBN on Twitter is the best place to probably do that. But of course, you can also find me on Twitter at BT Roland. You can send them to Scott as well at Scott Coleman 55 on Twitter. And uh, without further delay, here are some questions from the mailbag that I will be answering on today's show. First one comes from Grant. So this is not Grant McCauley, who's a colleague of ours at Battery Power. Um, and he says, we need your reaction to the Sean Murphy extension. I don't think I know what it is. Uh, very, very plainly said there from Grant. And yes, I have not offered my thoughts on Sean Murphy in podcast form. I know it's been covered a lot, so I won't spend too much time on it. But for my own sake, to share these numbers, Murphy, of course, signed a six-year, $73 million guaranteed extension with the Braves. It's a club option as well, $15 million in 2029 with uh, no buyout from there. That's pretty team-friendly at the end of that to have a no buyout club option. Uh, it does buy out three years of arbitration for Murphy. That's a key piece of the evaluation of this contract um, because he is he was way ahead. So basically, you know, the, everyone is kind of, kind of assumes or rolls their eyes that the Braves are going to sign everyone to an extension. And they kind of have, and I have a question later on in the podcast about extensions, but Murphy wasn't going to be a free agent for three seasons. And that is a, a key piece of the context here because let's just say for this year in particular, he was projected to make about three and a half or $4 million in arbitration. That's a very modest figure. But when you remember that it's three years away from free agency, that's a pretty normal figure. So yes, this deal is only... $12.2 million or so in average annual value, which is low for what Sean Murphy has been and probably will be over the life of his contract. But especially early on, his, his I would say, earning power was relatively modest because he was so far ahead of arbitration and that whole process. So uh, the first two years are going to be small. The Braves are also paying $15 million a year for the final arbitration year, which is probably market value in some respects. And then it was a three-year window at $15 million per season after that. The option year is Sean Murphy's age 34 season. There's a chance he's still pretty good at that point, of course. Um, nothing is assured there. Um, you know, it's not quite as bad as like relief pitching is. But catchers are volatile, and age can kind of bite you a little bit at the catcher position. Um, I will say Travis Darnot has aged quite well. Uh, of course, the Braves' other catcher at this point, which is a positive sign. Darnot has had some injury concerns along the way, and he's only he's only still 33 right now. So, you know, Murphy at the end of the deal in the club option year will be older than Darnot is now, which is at least a, a one one comparison point. But still, you know, it's it's notable to me that Fangraphs had Murray being, sorry, Murphy being worth $26 million in 2021. That's a lot more than he's making. Then this year, he was worth more than $40 million. Now, you can't expect that to always continue, but we've gone through the numbers when the, when the trade happened and all of that stuff repeatedly on this podcast. But just as a reminder, he's basically been a top two or three catcher in the sport the last three or four years, something like that. Um, you could say JT, JT Real Muto has been better than him, but he's probably the only guy that you could say definitively has been better than Murphy for a pretty large period of time at this stage. So he's basically a star. He's not a star in name or recognition nationally. He's playing for a pretty anonymous A's team. He isn't a high-profile hitter necessarily. He's just a pretty good hitter, more, more so defensively providing value there. So that's part of this. But $15 million a year is a very, very solid number for a number one catcher, and that's what he is. I mean, even if you think he's going to fall off a little bit, 
maybe he'll be a top five to seven catcher in the league rather than top two or three. That's still very much worth what he's been, what he'll be paid during this deal. You're basically just trying to fade some of the long-term downside that comes with age. Again, he's not a total master of a hitter. It's at least possible also. This is probably a little bit further away, but with robot umpire discussions happening, if that were to come in in the middle of this deal, Murphy's value would take a hit. It wouldn't be totally eliminated by any means, but all the framing would go away under those circumstances. At least most of it would go away, and I think that that would certainly hurt catching value for guys that are like kind of known for their defense. But still, I think overall, to answer the question more plainly, I like the deal a lot. Um, it's one that I definitely would have done as the Braves. There is some sour grape stuff happening across baseball with people mad at the Braves for these, a lot of these extensions, which we'll actually touch on a little bit later on this episode. But, uh, you know, the only one that I think was ridiculous, honestly, was the Ozzy Albies contract, which we'll come back to. The Aaron Acuna deal was also quite team-friendly, of course, but he did sign that very, very, very early in the process and at least got a $100 million locked-in contract. Same with Michael Harris. He signed very early, but it's a lot of money. All that, all that to say, the Braves have unlocked this middle ground where they definitely have a bunch of team-friendly deals. That is certainly the case. But they also are providing security to these players. Um, and that's that life-changing money that comes with that security and that safety of, you know, if you get hurt or if you just, you know, stop being as effective, um, there's nothing really, nothing really inherently wrong with that. It's a, it's a compromise always. There's always a point, and I've kind of argued, maybe this is more anecdotal than anything else, but I've kind of always thought that the player slash agent side was a little bit um, more risky than I would be in certain certain situations. Um, I think there is a lot of inherent value to life-changing money. You could sort of argue the um, the marginal value of, let's say, if Murphy signs $15 million a year annual value, this this contract, what's the difference between that and $18 million, the potential to make $18 million later on? I don't know. It's a good sort of economics thing we can talk about later on. We'll probably not talk about later on on this podcast. But no matter what, the Braves have this... Uh, process that's gone well for them. Murphy fits into it very very nicely. All parties are saying the right things. Uh, he has not played for the Braves yet, and it's a little bit weird always to sign a guy for a long, long time that's not played for your organization yet after you trade for him, but I think Murphy's going to fit in well. He's very, very good and uh, a good contract for the Braves overall. Um, before we get into the rest of the mailbag questions, and there are a few more to be sure, a, a word from our sponsors on the podcast today. All right, and speaking of extensions, I got a question from Val that I went into with some real depth and made a lot of notes on, so it's probably going to be a very long answer. But the question is, how would you rank the Braves' extensions by how good they are for the team? Now, that's important. There are different ways to evaluate extensions. You can certainly put them from the player side. Um, all, that, all that said, the question is about what's the most friendly for the team. Keep that in mind. I'm going to go in reverse order in a second. But just as a reminder, the big extensions the last few years for the Braves are the Murphy deal, which is, which just happened. You have Matt Olson, you have Ronald Acuna, you have Austin Riley, you have Michael Harris, Ozzie Albies, and Spencer Strider. All seven of those guys have extensions through at least 2027. And uh, that is unique in baseball right now. No team, no team has as many players beyond arbitration signed to extensions who are um, at the very least like star level players. You could argue that not all of those guys are like established, full-fledged superstars. Maybe only Acuna is definitely that at this stage. But you know, I think all seven of these guys. Strider has a small sample size, along with Harris, of course. But those guys reaches they reached the highest of heights this year. Uh, Ozzy's not always play that level, but obviously we'll get into that deal in a second, etc. All seven of these guys are very good, and they're signed for a very long time. And that is the those are the players I'm going I'm to be ranking on this extension breakdown. Uh, I'm going to go again, 7-1 to one in terms of team friendliness. Before I do that, I'll just say this 
so that nobody gets this confused at all. For up front here, I think every single one of these seven deals leans more to the team than the player. Obviously, it's going to get that gap's going to become wider as we go. I could at least see arguments against a couple of these deals from the team side, but if I had to choose which side won the negotiation on all of these, I think I'd probably lean to the Braves. Uh, a couple of these are close, I will say, but none of these are bad. I'll say that. that that's obviously a great place to be if you are a fan of the Atlanta Braves. It's just to say, look, all seven of these deals, there are varying degrees of team friendliness, but they're all good values in my mind, and that's important to keep in mind when evaluating them. Okay, number seven, a.k.a. the least team-friendly of these deals, I think is Spencer Strider. It's six years and $75 million. It's the highest guarantee for any pitcher in history with this little service time, and he basically got like double the previous record. Um, also, he got more than Sandy Alcantara, who won the Cy Young, who had like three years of service, and Spencer had like one, basically. Um, the Braves only got one season of free agency out of this, which is part of the reason why this is at the end of the list. Um, they did buy out two seasons of pre-arbitration and three seasons of arbitration. It could be two if they pick up the club, club option at the end of this. But the real reason why this is number seven is a list of sort of a, a combination of the volatility of pitching, number one, and that they're paying him quite a bit of money at the end, which is okay, obviously. It's exceptionally cheap for three years, which is pre-arb and the first year of arbitration. It was going to be cheap no matter what. Even if they had not extended him, it would have been very cheap in those years no matter what. Then it bumps up to basically what amounts to a four-year deal worth more than $80 million if you kind of factor in the club option at the end. So three years and, and $60-plus million locked in plus the club option. I've said this before. Uh, I would have done all these deals, but Strider deal has the clearest path to downside. Uh, he was awesome this year. No one should say otherwise. He was fantastic. He was arguably one of the top three or four pitchers in the entire league on a per-inning basis. He didn't have the same workload as other guys. He, he obviously was, was out of the bullpen early in the season, and we were yelling on this podcast, I know I was, about him. He should have been starting earlier, but no matter what, he was awesome this year. But pitching is more volatile, for sure, and they're paying him a salary in those four years at the end, or three years guaranteed plus the club option, that's like a number two, maybe even almost number one salary. Um, so there's not really a big discount here. Like, I'm not going to go all the way in. We talked about when the deal happened on all these, but I don't think the Braves got a real discount on Strider. It's okay. Certainly he has the ability to outperform this contract, and once again, I would have done the deal. If the, if the only options were yes or no, I would have said yes. But this is this is not a huge heist. I never thought that was the case. And uh, as, even as good as Strider was, he kind of has to be really good for a while for this deal to actually make sense. And for a starting pitcher who, yes, he was good this year, but only has proven it for a year, there was a, that was a little bit, uh, I would say, more risky than some of these deals have been. So that's why it's number seven. It's still totally fine. Number six, uh, Austin Riley is where I would go next. It's the biggest contract in Braves history. Ten years and 212 with a $20 million club option at the end that might help the value at the very end if he's still playing well. It's three seasons of arbitration bought out plus seven years of free agency. So it's a very different deal there. We're going to actually answer a question later on in the podcast about a comparison between Riley and Rafael Devers, but the deal does look quite solid to me. I do think the Braves gave this deal out at kind of a funny time, which I mentioned at the time. He had just had the best month that he will maybe ever have. It was like a record-breaking month, and they paid him like literally the next day, which is kind of funny. I don't know how much that influenced the deal, but it was just more, more of an optics thing. Um, I do think that he, uh, they certainly did not get a discount here either, at least a big one. It's good value. He signed through the age of 35, club options the age 36 season. Uh, he's been worth more than $30 million in each of the last two seasons. So if he's just even 80% of this player than he's been the last two years, it's a good deal. 
Um, there is some risk in a deal this long. That's kind of the difference. So position players are a lot safer than pitchers, generally speaking. And Riley's bat, I think, is pretty darn safe, at least with regard to the power. He might have some ups, ups and downs. He's had some bad months, some hot, month, some hot months. I don't think he's always going to be the most consistent guy in the world, but I do have faith in the bat. No question about that. But a deal this long, there is always downside, even if it's a guy who's even better than Riley is. And Riley's a star at this point, but you know, a 10-year deal, there's questions. Plus, defensively, uh, he's not fantastic at third base, and I really the only way that he can move off of third base would be to go to either first, where they already have Matt Olson, or to become a full-time DH. And he might be a DH in a, in a few years, but that does not help your value in terms of the contract. So, again, a deal that I would have done if the only option was yes or no, but a deal that has some downside to it in a different way than Strider, because it's more because it's more about the length, honestly. Because I think the next five years or so. There's not a whole lot of downside with this deal, but by the end, anytime you're talking about a guy getting into his early thir- early, early to mid-30s, there is more downside risk at the very end. But there you go, number six is Austin Riley. Number five is the Sean Murphy deal for me. So I just talked about that a second ago. I'm not going to go back into it, but it's a good deal. He's a catcher. The bat is not crazy elite. There is some downside, but still a really good value. And I talked about that only a few minutes ago on this podcast. Uh, number four is Matt Olson for me. Eight years and 168. It was the biggest deal in Braves history until the Riley deal happened only a few months later. A club option at the end for Olsen as well. It was two years of arbitration and six years of free agency. Um, honestly, this is a lot of, in a lot of ways like the most straight-ahead extension of all of them. It came at a very obvious time post-trade where like, I think we all kind of expected it to happen, honestly. It's a good value, and that's $22 million a year over his free agent years. He, it's signed for, he's signed for less time than Riley. He's a little bit older than Riley is right now. But he had a longer level of being proven than Riley's had, which is kind of the tiebreaker in some regards there. And also Olsen is a better defender at first than Riley's at third in my mind. Um, But he had been basically a proven entity for about four and a half seasons was Matt Olsen before this deal. And um, even in a down year this year after he signed the deal, he was worth well over what he's making. So even if you thought that that Olsen had a bad season this year, he, he wasn't fantastic, but he was still worth more than this deal would provide. There is some downside risk, again, because of the length. He'll be 35 at the end of it, but it's pretty safe, and uh, he is number four as a result of that. Even though Riley was better than Olsen this year, no question about that. It's just that one deal was longer in nature, and Riley, I think, is still a little bit less proven than Olsen, even if Riley has been better than Olsen in the last couple of seasons. All right, number three is Michael Harris. So this is an interesting one. Harris signed eight years and $72 million, two club options. Both club options have $5 million buyouts, but it's a very cheap number, which kind of uh, allows you kind of that flexibility. Um, because he finished in the top two in Rookie of the Year voting, Harris will become a free agent at the end of twenty seven at the end of twenty twenty seven season. So he actually ends up buying out three years of free agency here, which is notable. Uh, part of the appeal on Harris's side of this deal was that unlike Strider, who stays at that like like one million dollar a year figure for a while, Harris is immediately making $5 million this year, where he would not have been making $5 million. Um, that's part of the value here. I'm not saying that's going to that's gonna be all of it, but if you are Michael Harris, uh, it's probably pretty nice to be making $5 million instead of instead of, you know, instead of a million in your first season. So that's part of this. Um, he debuted at the end of May and signed the deal in the middle of August. So uh, it, it came pretty quick. Obviously, that's part of why it is so cheap for what it could be, because if Michael Harris repeats anything close to his season this this year, he's he's worth three times this money. I mean, maybe even more than that, four times this money. He was that good. Um, I, 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 I want to go crazy about it, but 
Uh, and look, his legs and his glove make a lot of a difference. I think there is some question about his, about how good his bat actually is, but I think it's still pretty good at least. And even if, even if he became a below average hitter, which I'm not saying he's going to happen, but it, just because we're talking about team-friendly nature of his deal, even if he really leveled off with the bat and was just like okay at the plate, his glove and center field and his legs make this deal look fantastic. It's not that long, so the risk the risk there is not very high. Uh, yeah, I, I love it. I think that there is very, very little downside here. Obviously, for a player who's not, who's not played a ton of time, there are examples in history of rookies who had great years and then kind of fell off. That could happen, I guess. But because this is so cheap, the downside is kind of non-existent. So I loved it, and that's a good cure. That's a good deal, number three. Uh, number two is Ronald Acuna. Uh, number, so obviously, you know, number one is with Ozzy Albies. But number two is Ronald Acuna. It's, it was, at the time, eight years for $100 million guaranteed it becomes $124 million for 10 years if you include both club options. And uh, I'll just say this, unless something very odd happens, those options are going to be very valuable and very cheap for the Braves. Um, the deal was signed almost four years ago, April 2019. It's been a long time. And Acuna is still under contract for six more seasons without ever making more than $17 million in any year. He bought out four seasons of free agency if you include the club options. It's an absolutely fantastic deal for the team. The big difference between Acuna and Albies as to why Ozzy is number one on this list from a team-friendly standpoint is because uh, Acuna at least guaranteed himself $100 million. Now, he's going to be worth a lot more than that. I, it's a bad, This is a bad deal for the player side. I, I believe that it was not as bad as the number one deal for the player side. But at least he locked in life-changing money. And if you factor in the team options, uh, he's gonna be, you know, it's more than $120 million. It's a lot of money. Now, he gave up a lot of money. I think if Acuna had played this out, he would have gotten a lot more. And I get that. Um, but the reaction in baseball was pretty swift to this one. Um, he should have signed for a lot more. It's only going to get worse if, uh, by the way, I think he's going to have a huge year this year based on all of what I have seen so far. A year off the ACL, I still believe Ronald is one of the best player talents in the entire league. So uh, I expect him to be basically an MVP caliber player for the next several seasons. He's still very young at this point. So this is a great deal for the Braves. That's not a huge secret. But uh, he's number two because number one is Ozzy Albies. So no one is saying that Ozzy is better than Ronald. Let's be very clear about that. And I think that there is still a chance that Acuna provides more surplus value on the deal than Ozzy does because Ronnie is really capable of being like a $50 million player. Like that, that's how good he actually is. But going back to Ozzy, it was seven years and $35 million, then two option years. Now, if both option years are exercised, which I think is a virtual lock, he'd have to be hurt or totally fall off a cliff for the options not to be exercised because they're so cheap. So Ozzy would have given up four years of free agency and quote-unquote only made $45 million. Now, a lot of people in baseball that I consider to be smart believe this is pretty much the worst extension signed by a player in the last decade, maybe two decades. Like, it's it's that bad. I don't want to pile on. Uh, there's been a lots, lots of hot takes. It's been a while since this, this deal actually happened, but it was a terrible, terrible signing by the player, which makes it a good sign by, by the team, obviously. So... Ozzy's not as good as Ronald, never will be, I don't think. But another thing that makes this deal even crazier was that one of the things about Ronnie is that he signed super early. Now, we all knew he was an elite prospect. He had proven a little bit. He had already reached the majors and done well. But Ozzy had already been a like a three-and-a-half or four-win player for a full season in 2018. 
and he had already been a good player in about a half season in 2017. So he already had a year and a half of data proving he was going to be a good major league player before he signed the deal, whereas Ronnie signed quite early, like in his first season, basically. So it wasn't like he, it was more like the Harris deal, basically, except for Ozzy signed for less and had proven a lot more. It's just a weird situation. Uh, he may not be a star again. That's something that, that does matter here. I'm kind of going back to when the deal was signed versus right now today. And yeah, there's a chance Ozzy is not the same player post-injuries that he was a few years ago. That's at least on the table. But one of the things about this is that he gave up so many free agent years for so little upside that it becomes number one. And look, he locked in $35 million of guaranteed money and the very high likelihood of $45 million. That's life-changing money. He had not made a lot of money in his, in his life to that point. He was not a huge bonus baby, all that stuff. And hopefully he'll never have to worry about money again. But it was still a horrific deal to the point where like the PA was not thrilled by some reporting out there. Um, agents were not happy with Ozzy's agent at that point in time. It was very favorable from the team side. And um, again, one more, t- one, one more time here. There's a chance these, these deals could flip because Ronnie is so good that here's my example. Ronnie making $17 million a year might be... Uh, more helpful for the Braves because he's capable of being a $45 million player. Whereas Ozzy making $7 million a year when he should be making like 20, must by $20 million a year is a huge value, but maybe less surplus than Ronnie. But no matter what the order is, those are the top two. Ronnie being the fact that he's so good and so cheap and then Ozzy just signing a bad contract. So there you go. Moving on from contract stuff for right now, we'll come back to the last question at the end uh, about Austin Riley. But um, quickly here, a question um, from Lane, who says, what should the plan be for Marcelo Zuna, assuming that cutting him is not an option? So it's tough, because if it was me, I would have cut Ozuna already. But that's not the, that's not the question, so I understand that that's the, that's the prompt we're going with here. Uh, I want to ra- remind everyone that Ozuna taking everything out, I'm not going to even do the value judgment of his off-field stuff right now at all. I am going to totally ignore that for the next few moments. He's been very bad as a baseball player, the last two years. He has negative 0.9 Fangraphs war in 172 games over the last over the last two seasons. So yes, he's had some injury stuff in there, but he's played more than a full season's worth of at-bats, and he's been strongly negative in terms of overall value. His slash line in those 715 plate appearances is 222, 278, 397. That's a sub-700 OPS. He has WRC plus of 84. He has the worst defensive numbers of any player on the roster. He's not the worst in every single category. Like, he's bad in UZR, he's bad in DRS, he's bad in above, above, outs, outs above average. So, like, there's there's guys who are worse in all those categories individually, but he is the worst across the board defensively, and he can't throw. All those things are already out there. The one selling point in a positive direction, if you want to do that, on Ozuna, is that the batted ball profile still looks pretty good. He hits the ball hard most of the time, and he does have some power. He has 30 home runs in that sample size, Although 30 home runs and 715 plate appearances is not anything crazy. That's like a 25 homer pace for a full season. That's fine, but that's all you do. It's not quite enough. Um, It's a real number, though. He did hit pretty well in September in a tiny sample size. He hit right-handers last year at a decent level as well. There are some small indicators of life there. But on the performance front, it's not impossible to me that Ozuna can bring some value at the plate this season. I wouldn't be stunned if he was an above-average hitter when you look at the ball, when you look at the batted ball data and what his long-term record has been as a hitter. But he didn't look good over the winter, by all accounts. He struggled in the winter league, um, and really, you just can't bank on Ozuna hitting well. In my mind, it's possible he does, but you can't bank on it. And defensively, you know he's bad, so that's part of this too. So that brings us to the best role. 
Uh, provided, again, that you're giving a directive that he has to have some role in the roster. I think he, unless he looks awful in the spring, he's going to get some at-bats at DH, particularly in April, and kind of just see what happens. Because the Braves don't really have an everyday DH on this roster. Um, if Contreras was still here, uh, I would have been arguing that he would have been the primary DH this year. Now, Sean Murphy is your starting catcher, and while Travis Darno can DH and will DH, he's not a like A-plus DH-only player. Like, Contreras could have been really like a pretty darn good DH. If Darno is only DHing, he might be above average, but he's not anything more than that. Like, he's, he's a good hitter for a catcher, not really a great hitter individually. So, I think Ozuna, that's his clearest path, is as a DH when Darno is not DHing and when Murphy's, Murphy's not DHing, etc. Uh, playing him in left field is something that I'd basically never want to do unless I have to. It's possible that maybe Jordan Luplo struggles and there's a role for Ozuna as the Rosario platoon option in left field. And Rosario just can't hit lefties. He probably almost kind of never has been able to in his career. But it could change based on other moves. You got you got Hilliard out there as well. There are other like guys on the roster. But if the roster is the roster that is right now and you're not allowed to cut him, I think the way that I would I would use him would be to try him at DH, have him play for a month, maybe not every single day, obviously, but see what there is. And they'll know more in spring. Like I think internally they will have a better idea than we will on the outside of what they think of Ozuna as a hitter. Because the fielding is so bad that like playing him in the left field any time consistently is a disaster. So uh, if you make me choose, I will make him DH, and uh, you're just kind of crossing your fingers and hoping that he can post like a like a 110 WRC plus and help you. Because uh, you know overall he's been a negative player for two years. All right, last big baseball question comes from Josh, who says, "Do you agree that the Rafael Devers deal makes the Austin Riley deal look better?" Uh, by the way, the Devers deal just happened a few days ago as we record this. It only happened, this is a big, a big piece of context that's very important that I've not seen talked about a ton. Um, Devers deal only happened with one year before free agency. And the two sides already had agreed on an arbitration avoidance number for this year. So when Riley signed, it was midseason and he had three years of arbitration left. That's a huge difference in the length and value. So... The market also is important. Like this year's market, obviously we saw a spending spree. As I record this, the Carlos Correa thing is still lingering out there, which is crazy to me here in January. But uh, the, the amount of money spent across the board in baseball uh, was a lot more than the last two years, which is when Riley signed in the middle of last year. It was in-season versus out-of-season, etc. So this is not an apples-to-apples apples deal. Now, as we'll get into it in a second, they're very similar players, which is means that the comparisons won't stop. I promise you that. But uh, basically on the surface, I've seen a lot of reactions. And I don't, I don't blame anybody. I think even Scott said this. I don't blame anybody for, anybody for saying this because it does make it look better. Dever signing for $100 million, about $100 million more than Riley makes Riley's deal look better because they're kind of the same player. But there is some context. It is maybe not crazy in terms of value difference between the two. Um, Devers is about six months older than Riley, so they're basically the same age. The big thing is that Devers has a longer record of performing. He's played uh, a lot more. He's, he actually debuted two years earlier than Riley. And then Riley had basically two years of not being very good at the beginning of his career. Um, but their career numbers are hilariously similar. They're three points apart in career on base percentage. They're five points apart in slugging. They're one point apart in OPS+. plus. Like, they're the same hitter for their career, basically. Riley strikes out more, but has more home runs. Uh, almost the same exact walk rate. Not great walk rates, but basically almost the same. Devers has the edge if you start the sample size when Riley debuted in 2019. So like the f last four years, Devers has been better. Um, 
because Devers has been like the number five, yeah number four third baseman in baseball over the last four years, whereas Riley's down at twelfth. Um, but if you go the last two years when Riley broke out, they're basically the same again. In the last two seasons, they are three points apart in OBP. They are one point apart in slugging. They are two points apart in WRC plus. They are exactly the same. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, actually. Uh, neither one adds on the bases. They're both below average defenders. Even if that comment might get me yelled at by Riley fans, I understand. He's a below average defender in my mind. Um, the metrics differ a lot on both of these players. For instance, in DRS, defensive run saved, Riley is a lot better than Devers. But in UZR, ultimate zone rating, Devers is a lot better than Riley. In outs above average, Devers is a lot better than Riley. So I'm not going to tell you I know for sure who's a better defender, but neither one is good and neither one is great. And I think that you could kind of call it maybe close to a wash defensively between those two guys. Maybe Riley's better. I don't know. But it's not a huge it's not a huge gap. So long story short, does the deal make Riley's contract look better? I think probably on the outside, uh, probably, probably less than you think because of the differences in the two contracts, but they are the same player, uh, essentially, at least right now. And when you factor all that in, paying one guy $100 million less than the other guy, even over a different a different sample size, is, uh, is a good thing in comparison. So hopefully that answers the question. Uh, last one is kind of baseball-related, but not really analysis-related. Uh, comes from Jarrett, who says, if you had to go to one Braves road series or road trip in 2023, what would it be? Uh, good time to remind everyone that the schedule format has changed. The Braves are going to be playing only 56 games against the division this year and 46 games against interleague competition. You're playing against every single team in the league every year now with the schedule change, which I love, personally. Um, I know not everyone likes that. I think it's good for the sport to play every team every year, and there are plenty of division games still. Like That that won't be a huge problem. But long story short, uh, if I was picking one series to go to on the road, I would personally go to San Diego. April 17 through 19 is a trip to San Diego. Um, number one, I am fascinated by the Padres, and they have a ton of stars. Um, and number two, San Diego is a beautiful place, especially in April where it's still kind of cold some places. Um, the weather's phenomenal there. Uh, I like to go to San Diego, generally speaking. So that's one I would circle for a one-series road trip. That's a personal preference, obviously. Um, as far as a whole road trip, I think I would go... It's a three-city three trip. It's San Francisco to Denver to Los Angeles from August 25th through September the 3rd. It's a long trip, obviously, but if you just had the money and had the time, it'd be great. You're seeing three cool cities, uh, San Francisco, Denver, and L.A. The Braves play two good teams in the Giants and the Dodgers in that sample size. Plus, in the middle of that, you have some pretty good opportunities for wins against the Rockies. Sorry, Rockies fans. Um, it's also fairly late in the schedule. It's right before football gets going, so all eyes are still on the baseball at that point in time in August into September. It's a long trip. You would have fun. Lots of, lots of games to watch. So uh, that's kind of what I would go with for a full road trip. Uh, the one trip that I would probably make above all others right now in baseball is probably going to New York for a Mets showdown, but it's probably too obvious of an answer, so I try not to use that as my answer. But Braves-Mets in a competitive series in New York would be a lot of fun. But no matter, and that also happens every year, so it's a little bit less exciting than going to one of those long West Coast trips out to uh, see my friend Scott. I almost used a, an Arizona trip in there just to say hello to Scott, but there you go. We'll, uh, we'll visit Scott at another time. All right, I'm done rambling for today's podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this solo endeavor. I uh, I definitely plan in the future to be uh, solo very less, very, very much less often than I have been recently. We'll have plenty of content coming 
Spring training is not that far away. Pitchers and catchers will be reporting in like, I don't know, five weeks, something like that. We're getting very close, and I do encourage you to subscribe to this podcast across podcast platforms. If you like the show, the best possible thing that you can do is, number one, spread the word for us. Tell friends that are Braves fans about this podcast. Have them check it out. Hopefully they like it. And number two, to subscribe and like auto-download on multiple platforms. If you like Apple Podcasts, which is most people's things, I think Apple, Apple and Spotify are the market leaders. If you like one of those, do that. And then also do Spotify and auto-download or do Stitcher and auto-download or Overcast or Google Play. All those places host our podcast. You can probably find us wherever you get your podcast, no matter what. But uh, go ahead and click around, subscribe, rate, review, and that definitely helps us quite a bit. And then also, I should always say this and I sometimes forget, but please read batterypower.com. Uh, or follow and or follow the site on Twitter at BatterPowerSBN. Chris does a great job. Ivan, the new deputy site manager. Demetrius has been around for a long time. Scott's been around forever. Um, the written side is a fantastic resource. Check that out for sure, BatteryPower.com. And also there's a post for every single one of these podcasts on the site as well. And hopefully you guys enjoy all of that. I hope you enjoy this week as well as we go into uh, January. Things are uh, rolling downhill at this point in 2023. Thank you for listening, everybody. We'll see you all next time.